Hi guys, my name is Glenn and I am excited for the first episode of our virtual book club, The God Talk Pod. This is a show in which we're going to analyze George Martin's Song of Ice and Fire from the perspective of academic literary criticism. And if you're listening to the pod, then it means that you're possessed of some exquisite literary taste and you're hankering for more Thrones talk, deeper Thrones talk. Okay, so let, let's set the table we established in the introductory episode the really incredible literary pedigree of George Martin's Song of Ice and Fire series. And in another series of pods, we are going to run down and discuss that lineage. We'll show that the DNA of the Song of Ice and Fire really it originates with Homer and Plato, and it runs through Dante and James Joyce and some other titans of western literature in this line of investigation and in this set of pods we're going to go through the books chapter by chapter and see if we can spot those textual references and catch george in that literary sleight of hand those illusions those tricks of the eyes and ears that are really are his stock and trade and indeed i called him an illusionist in the introductory episode well that will be in full effect here in the prologue of book one everyone is meant to be bamboozled by the walking dead but but we know better uh, okay, so the subtitle, Song of Ice and Fire, we discussed way back in the intro episode in episode one, so please do go give that a listen if you haven't done so already. Here, we're going to cover just the prologue of Game of Thrones. That's book one of the Song of Ice and Fire. Oh, and, and so one final bit of housekeeping before we get going. So all of the other Thrones book pods that I listen to or that I'm aware of give a chapter summary when they discuss a chapter. That feels redundant to me. I mean, we're reading along and we're talking about what we just read. Do we really need a summary? But <laughs> everyone else is doing it. So there must be some reason for that or some utility for that. So ultimately, I decided, OK, I'll do a recap just to set the stage for the discussion. But but I'm not going to go through it in minute detail, right? I'm, I'm only going to hit the highlights that I think are important. So it will be a skewed view indeed. So we open on this really tense conversation between three men, three dudes that seem like they're about to have beef. But in just a matter of just a page or two, it becomes obvious that these, these guys are soldiers of a sort, members of the Night's Watch. And right away, you recognize, I mean, this reads like a sort of Vietnam-era wartime novel, something that you might read by from Tim O'Brien, or maybe like Michael Herr's Dispatches, if you've read that. Or, or it's like any veteran story that you've ever heard about their time and country where a grizzled veteran tells a young, inexperienced commander what the situation is, but the young an experienced commander insists on his place and his rank and his privilege and he forces his view or he forces his orders on them. So <laughs> sorry, sorry, I started to I started doing the analysis part. Sorry. So anyway, okay, so back to the summary. So okay, so we have three guys, three members of the Night's Watch. They're in this tense conversation. One of them keeps asserting that the wildlings they have been sent to find have in fact been found, and are in fact dead. The problem is the young commander has no respect for the words and views of his men. He insists on seeing these dead wildlings with his own eyes. 
Now, there's a third guy in the conversation. He hasn't seen the dead wildlings himself, but he doesn't need to. His buddy's word is good enough for him. And in any event, he feels very ill at ease. Something is wrong. Both of the soldiers, in fact, can feel it. But no matter what their protestations are, the kid, the the brainless young officer, to quote Jane Austen, the brainless young officer insists on seeing these dead wildlings with his own eyes. So we press on until indeed they do get to the clearing of the dead wildlings. And shocker, there are no dead wildlings. They're gone. The bodies are gone. I mean, the camp is still there. The weapons are still there, but the bodies are gone. None of that oddness sort of registers on the little lordling. I mean, if you if you see that there's uh, weaponry and the tent and the lean-to and the canvas, the technical term for that, I guess you'd say, is environmental infrastructure. And without that, they're dead. So, I mean, what sort of wildlings leaves that behind, right? Not living ones, certainly. But it's at just this moment when the young leader is sort of flushed with pride about how he's been proven right and he's shown that these guys are wrong, that the the wildlings clearly must not be dead because they're no longer in the clearing. At just that moment, something happens. First, it gets incredibly cold. They see shadows at the edge of their vision, out of the corners of their eyes. And then this alien creature appears, an other, other with a capital O, appears before the young lordling. is described as tall and gaunt with white, white flesh, pale as milk. The other's armor changes color and texture as they move through the wood. Of its sword, the text says that no human metal had gone into the forging of the blade. It was alive with moonlight, translucent, a shard of crystal so thin that it seemed to vanish with seen edge on. So this fellow here is clearly beyond all experience and all understanding and they're aptly named as other because um they're just so so foreign and so outside of anything that our night's watchmen are able to comprehend uh okay another distinctive feature of the others are their eyes eyes of blue here i'm quoting from the text eyes of blue deeper and bluer than any human eyes a blue that burned like ice. So the Lordling and the other fight, and eventually the Lordling is killed. Turns out there are actually a bunch of others standing around, and they get him on the beat down too. So, but if that weren't enough, so, I mean, we've just seen an alien, right, an other. But if that weren't enough, (laughs) there's this final kick in the pants where after the others beat feet out of there, one of the rangers, one of the soldiers comes down to pick up the dead Lordling's broken sword as evidence, as proof of the remarkable, incredible, really, things that he's just seen. But when he turns around, boom, jump scare. The dead Lordling is now a blue-eyed zombie who grabs him and chokes him to death. The end. (laughs) Amazing, right? Thrilling. Shocking. Okay, so now that was the, the summary. Now let's do the analysis, right? Before we do anything else, Let's remember that we're working on four levels of analysis. So literal, allegorical, moral, and spiritual. Well, oh my God, we've literally just seen aliens and zombies in the prologue. (laughs) That's, That's incredible. Toto, we aren't in Kansas anymore, right? We're not even in the novel proper, and we're already on remarkable ground. So George is putting his stake in the ground right here saying, hey, look, We are in the high fantasy realm of zombies 
and others, but we're also in this gritty realm of what I'm calling combat journalism, right? I compared it with Vietnam era, Vietnam war era novels or writing. So, I mean, if the job of the prologue is to set the tone for the novel to come, well, we are in for some, frankly, pretty dark stuff with a dollop of magic and mystery on the side, right? Of course, we are not interested in just the literal interpretation. Those are the literal events, the surface events, but we want to see what's happening behind the words, right? To ride the current that moves underneath the text. So I won't be explicitly mentioning those four levels of analysis all the time, but just keep that framework in mind as we go. And as I've said before, and as I'll probably end up repeating ad nauseum, George is an illusionist who was intentionally trying to trick our eyes. So if all we see is the zombie, or if all we see is the other, then we will have absolutely missed virtually every other single important thing that's going on in the chapter. So let's just list some of the issues or some of the things that George is laying out here in the intro to the book, and indeed the intro to the entire series. So things that he is hitting on here or the seeds that he plants here will bloom later in this book. <laughs> some of them will bloom in future books. So there's something that you see here that will actually pay off in book five. So George has really, really expertly set the table here. So let's not be just be bamboozled by the proverbial lamprey pie or the, you know, again, the zombies. Here we go. Page one. My mother told me that dead men sing no songs. That is a direct callback to our cover page in Call Forward, you know, the Song of Ice and Fire, and Call Forward to Danny's vision of Princess Elia and her child. And that's something that'll pay off halfway through book two. And so we talked about, uh, in the introductory episode, we talked about the song as each person's representative of each person's potentialities in life, right? Your possibilities and potentialities made manifest, until the day you can sing no more. So that does seem to support our argument about each person's song being their own. Every mother's child must find their own voice and sing their own song. It's also worth noting, it's quite significant, I think, we get two references to women on the first page. Women is having special knowledge. My mother told me and my wet nurse said the same thing. That clearly, I think, prefigures the super important role of women throughout the series as sources of wisdom and insight. <laughs> no, Dude, I already, <laughs> I already hear your objection. You're like, aha, I got you, right? Like the, as if I don't know, or I don't recognize that young Waymar Royce is obviously being ironic when he says that his wet nurse said the same thing. Well, yes, I got it. it. In fact, it's only because he is speaking ironically that we know to take these words seriously. As we are going to see, I mean, essentially every single thing he says or does or thinks or perceives is in fact wrong, the opposite of reality. So if he says, never believe anything that you hear at a woman's tit, then I am 100% sure that we should, in fact, believe every single thing we hear at a woman's tit. So, so thank you, Waymar, for the hot tip. And again, you could recall that in the introductory episode, we said that the series could have been called Fathers and Sons or Mothers and Daughters. Well, here is the first hint, right? Page one of the prologue about the power 
that mothers are going to have in the story, the important role that mothers are going to play in the story. Page two, nine days they had been writing. That's nine days to die in a frozen hell. That's a wink, wink, nudge, nudge to Dante, whose frozen wasteland is indeed the ninth circle of hell. Uh, And here, too, on this page, we get the description of the little lordling. Well, we're going to use this info uh, to use Royce as a guidepost of a frankly different sort. There are some amazing similarities between Royce and other characters in the book. Here, we're just going to focus on one. We'll deal with the others when they come up. But here, I just want to point out one. Royce is the youngest son of an ancient house, a handsome handsome youth of 18, gray-eyed and graceful and slender. His first action in the story is to ask, Do the dead frighten you with a hint of a smile? Now, we're going to compare Royce with Theon Greyjoy. Page 12, Greyjoy, a lean, dark youth of 19 who found everything amusing, who is also the youngest son of an ancient house, and who is also going to make japes of the dead. It is uncannily similar, and and so similar that there's no doubt in my mind that we are supposed to make that connection. If you consider that these are thousands of pages and literally tens of thousands of words in the novels. The fact that these two descriptions are this close and they're this physically close in terms of the text, they're, you know, just a matter of like 10 or 12 pages apart in the text. To me, there's no, there's no doubt that we were supposed to, when we read the description of Theon, we're supposed to make the connection with Royce. That's no spoilers, right? That's just clearly George has made this link for a reason. So we need to hold that in our mind and monitor that and reassess that as we go forward, right? Page three, what killed them? Garrett, the 40-year the veteran, says, oh, it's the cold. The real enemy is the cold. It steals up on you. It's quieter than will, and it burns. Well, that is, in fact, exactly what happens on page seven. The cold, the silence, the blue eyes that burn like eyes. I mean, that's remarkable. So we'll get into more detail later. But the whole point here is just to contrast the deaf, dumb, and blind lordling with his men, who really perfectly, accurately understand and assess the situation. Also on page four, there is a big, big topic that we'll get into later, but it's captured in this one sentence, honor bound them to obey. So we'll deal with that in future episodes. Page five, a wolf howled. So here is nature rebelling and not even for the first time, right? I mean, think back to page two, Will felt his hackles rise. Garrett felt it too. Page three, The horses were restless. Page five, the wolf howls. Nature itself is revolting. It's telling you that something is wrong. Something is amiss. (laughs) Again, no spoilers. Every time you hear a wolf howl in the series, you better pay attention. Okay. Well, so like there's there's going to be a scene in uh, Clash of... I mean, again, it's all over, but there's a scene in Clash of Kings where, you know, Arya hears a wolf howl and she recognizes it instantly as a warning. Well, here, (laughs) Royce doesn't get in. So he doesn't get it at all. Um, Okay, so, but also why, right? Why is that important? Well, the revolt of nature really accentuates the alienness of the others, right? The strangeness of the others. And and maybe, I mean, we ask why, right? Why is that? Well, it could be that because cold is 
a real killer. I mean, I mean, obviously everyone recognizes like the desert is a wasteland, right? But look at the poles. Look at places of permanent winter and see how hard it is to sustain life in those conditions. So I think that's what that's meant to emphasize. And so even at this early stage of the book, we are getting important context for what we're going to hear over and over and over later, right? Winter is coming. Winter is coming and it's cold and it's desolate and it is a threat to every living creature. At the risk of going off on one of my patented digressions, I, I feel like we have to talk about the other senses, right? The, 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 the Dantean levels of analysis around winter since we just talked about the literal representation, the literal interpretation of winter, it seems like we at least have to mention here the allegorical and indeed the moral levels or sense of winter. So I, I think that the allegorical one is easy, right? Because we have so many references in Western literature and the Western canon. I mean, the winter of our discontent. I mean, like that's a famous Shakespearean line. But specifically, I think the one that really works actually is, is the Persephone myth. Persephone's time. She's the queen of Hades or the bride of Hades, the queen of the underworld. And so from Greek mythology. And so, and so her time in hell or sorry, yeah, in the underworld. Her time in the underworld is winter. So her time in the land of the dead is winter. And when she emerges, that's spring, right? Life springs eternal when Persephone returns. And I don't think that it's a coincidence, therefore, that George names the penultimate book in his series is called The Winds of Winter, while the conclusion is The Dream of Spring. Well, again, that perfectly mirrors Persephone's journey. So I feel like, I also feel like that's pretty easy, right? So I feel like the allegorical interpretation is, is pretty simple. That's straightforward. But morally, so now but what's the moral sense? The moral sense of winter is coming now maybe takes on a different meaning or has greater depth. Every single person is going to experience their personal winter, every single person is going to make that trip with Persephone into the land of the dead, right? So every single person is going to to die. So all men must die and winter is coming. Now seem <laughs> they're analogous, right? And both of those actually are very close to a famous, famous Stoic concept. Uh, it's a Latin phrase. I don't know if it's actually in Marcus Aurelius's meditations are not, but I know Marcus Aurelius has a similar concept where he basically says something like, I could die today, or if I die today. So this concept about your, you know, life is fleeting. And so, so the Stoic phrase is memento mori. And I think I, it literally translates to something like remember. So memento, remember, you must die. So remember, you must die, and all men must die, and winter is coming with a moral reading, right? Or this, uh, this moral reading that associates winter with, you know, our journey to the land of the dead. So all of those things all of a sudden sound very much alike, right? So now we're like clearly in this realm of, of Stoic philosophy. So I'm not sure, I'm not sure how I get from Stoic philosophy, how I get back to the prologue, but um, how I get out of this, how I get out of this mess I'm in. But okay, let's just, let's just, let's cut my, let's end the digression now and get back to the text. Page six, Will cannot make sense of the disappearance of the dead bodies. It wasn't possible. 
<laughs> Dude, that, as soon as I read that, that put me in mind of that famous bit from Star Trek, right? Everybody remembers the Star Trek line where Spock says, well, if you eliminate the impossible, then whatever's left, no matter how improbable, then that has to be your answer. Well, uh, you know, and then, okay, also at some point, we're going to have to have a discussion about James Joyce's Ulysses. And in that, we'll see how he treats these different types of knowledge and learning. So one is ideas and theoretical being the source of knowledge, and the other one is practical and experiential. And anyway, it's not just in Joyce. That actually goes all the way back to Plato and Aristotle. But in any event, the point is that we see this clash here right away at the very beginning of the series. The theory, the idea is pretty simple dead bodies don't move, right? <laughs> that seems like a simple proposition. But the reality, the lived experience tells us that the dead do, in fact, jump up and muck about quite a bit. So page seven, okay, this is another huge theme that's just captured here in one sentence. A boy no longer, but a man of the Night's Watch. This is one of the central themes of the book's you know, it shows up in the sense the story, the entire story revolves around kids, children finding their way, kids growing up, kids making mistakes, certainly, right? Kids maturing, kids learning to, for lack of a better term, kids learning to find their own voice and sing their own song. And finally, of course, we get introduced to the others and they are portrayed as really, truly foreign, as alien, as other. They look different. They speak different. They wear different clothes. They use different weapons. So we don't really know very many facts about them at all, right? All we get to experience is their difference, their otherness from our Night's Watchmen. And here we also get introduced to the zombies, or whites as we'll end up calling them, the children of the others, right? So the fact that they can reanimate corpses, that, that seems like that's going to be important as well. Okay, so those are the quick hits, right? So now... There are a lot of big questions and things that happen here, which are we are going to see really explored and developed over the course of the series. Like, remember how I said in the intro that A Song of Ice and Fire is really about justice? Well, there are really only just hints of that here in this in this prologue, right? And that they relate to the question of legitimate authority and, you know, why do the soldiers listen to the Lordling? So... But that is a bigger topic that we are going to save for the next chapter. That's the first chapter of the novel proper, because that topic is huge and it's explicitly addressed there. And it's going to punch us right in the gut. So we'll save that bit for later. For now, we are just going to highlight a couple of things, a couple big themes that will appear in some form or other on virtually every page, really, of the next five novels. And the first of those is what I am calling the problem of the eyes. And the second one is related, it, it really is related to that question, related to this problem of perception in the eyes, is how do we know what we know? And the fancy term for that is epistemology. So, okay, here we go with the problem of the eyes. I've been calling George an illusionist. So it stands to reason that perception, frankly, dragonfly eyes or bee eyes, are going to be very important to understanding the series. So the key concepts are those that we're going to talk about in the James Joyce episode and the, and the Plato episode. So please do go there and, and listen to those. So the concepts that underlie this discussion have their roots in, for example, Plato's cave um, or the concept of the parallax or the ineluctable modality of the visible. <laughs> 
it's it's James Joyce, right? He can't just say the problem of the eyes. Joyce has to call it the ineluctable modality of the visible. To say nothing of the ineluctable modality of the audible, right? Or or the, one another famous line from Ulysses is shut your eyes and see. All of these things are massively, massively important topics for understanding the series as a whole. And that's why I've tried to break them out and address them separately. So uh, so as I say, we you need to give a listen to the Joyce and the Plato episodes right here, right now. For this episode, I am simply going to group together all those big ideas or issues, and I'm going to call them the problem of the eyes. Okay, so here we go. So let's look at just the language of the prologue. Will saw them. Tell me again what you saw. How does it look? Did you see blood? Did you see weapons? The responses, though, that Will gives are clear, positive assertions. The camp is over here. There's wildlings dead. There's some guys on the ground and other guys up against a rock. This is all meant to accentuate not only really the difference between the two characters in terms of their experience and knowledge, but it is a sign to us, to the reader, George is waving at us like that guy on the runway. Like we've ever flown, right? There's a guy on a runway waving those little light sticks, right? Hey, pay attention over here. Come over here. You know, George is telling us seeing and knowing are real problems. The kid keeps emphasizing, right? Royce keeps emphasizing seeing, but he doesn't actually know anything. I mean, arguably, every single thing that Royce says is flat out wrong or the complete opposite interpretation to reality. His every instinct is wrong. He mocks a veteran for being frightened. Well, of course, he should be afraid. Will is talking, but the lordling seemed not to hear him. And later, Garrett says straight out, something's wrong. Can't you feel it? Listen to the darkness, but Royce doesn't feel, he doesn't listen, he doesn't see, he doesn't get any of it, right? Will has to tell him, this is humiliating, right? Will has to tell him the tree branches are too low for you to use your sword. That is ridiculous. Or Garrett, we need a fire. Royce goes, no, we don't. Fire is the last thing we want. I mean, that is ridiculous. Consider, okay, just consider that on page six, Royce is hacking his way clumsily through the trees, standing outlined on the ridgeline and laughing. And by page eight, he's dead as a doornail. So he does not get the situation that he's in. He doesn't get it because his senses are non-functional. He doesn't see, he doesn't hear, he doesn't feel. In these first few pages, really, George is reminding us that we have only the senses that we have to work with. But those senses are fallible. This is really the classic really philosophical problem that way, way transcends the small question of what did you see in the wildland camp? It's this bigger question of, can we trust what we see and how do we know what we know? And again, don't take it from me. It's right there in the text, right? Our job really is to knock the scales from our eyes to see what's really happening here. And that is going to come up time and time again in the story. So just one page into the novel, we are already swimming in very deep philosophical waters. And George is going to force us really to confront that over and over again in the novel proper because every chapter is going to be told from a different person's perspective. So you are forced to see events from multiple perspectives. You are forced 
to get inside each character's head and inhabit their mind and see the world through their eyes, hear what they hear, feel what they feel. I mean, let's, look, let's be honest, right? Magic. I mean, real honest to God magic in our world right now here today is being able to see what other people see, to feel what other people feel. And that is the tool that George is going to use really to brilliant effect throughout the series. Following on from that or related to that is, is a different problem, but a, a related problem. So, so remember how I said in the introductory episode that George's series is an epistemological masterclass. Well, it starts here and it starts with virtually the very first line. So what we see here on these pages is all about answering the question, how do we know what we know? Well, okay, so knowledge is based on something called justified true belief. I'll say that again, justified true belief. And that makes sense, right? If you think about it, if I don't believe something, I certainly can't count it as knowledge. And I have to believe something. I have to believe that something is true, right? For it to be even be in the, in the running for real knowledge. And how I get there is justifying and validating that belief, that perception through my senses, for example, right? What I saw or what I heard or what I felt. Okay, so now the book begins with the assertion, the wildlings are dead, period. That is the second sentence of the entire series, right? The second sentence of the book, the second sentence of the book. But everything that happens afterwards is an attack on that assertion. How do we know that it's true? Royce says straight out, what proof do you have? So when he says, tell me again what you saw, he is attacking the perception, the sensory data, on which our evidentiary claim is based, the view on which the justifiable belief is based. Or what about this part? You say they froze, but tell me again about the wall. It was weeping, right? So I'm telling you it's not that cold. Or when Will says, most of them were on the ground, fallen like. Royce comes right back and says, oh, you mean sleeping. Well, that exchange is a reference to a classic, classic philosophy problem, which maybe is best characterized by this hilarious, hilarious scene in Blazing Saddles, where they build a fake town, a fake Red Rock to trick Taggart and his gang of ruffians. So Taggart and his ruffians are justified in their incorrect belief that they're riding through the town. It is a ruse. It's not real. They have been deceived. Someone has played a trick on their eyes. So now we go back to the prologue. If Royce is right, if they were sleeping, then Will, his eyes could have been tricked. Will could still be justified in his belief. I mean, hey, it looks like they're dead. So it's possible for your eyes to be tricked. It's possible for your senses to be deceived, right? So now consider another entire set of epistemological problems. So far, we have assumed that Royce is being an honest broker trying to get at the truth. But it could be that he is, in fact, doing epistemic wrongs by doubting and discounting what Will says, when in reality, there's no basis for doing so. These are two of the baddest rangers, the baddest scouts in the watch. They're telling you the wildlings are dead, dude. There's no reason 
to doubt them. And I'm inclined actually to take this dim view of Royce myself, right? That he is just giving them the runaround because he can, because he's he's exercising his his power, his authority over them. Okay, but another category of epistemic wrongs that we will see over and over is that someone will speak the truth, someone will have some special knowledge, but the listener is not conceptually or cognitively equipped to deal with that information. Think of some of these sentences that we are going to hear time and again in the series. I was just over and over, right? There's dragons in the world, right? Dragons are back. And then someone will say, no, there aren't. That's nonsense. Dragons are extinct. Or the dead walk. No, they don't. That's nonsense. Or, or the opposite. Think of what just happened. Where did the dead go? The dead just don't get up and walk away. That's nonsense. Or, or this classic line that we were going to see in like five pages from now. There are no dire wolves south of the wall. So, so just because you are possessed of facts, that by itself isn't enough. There has to be a framework in which those facts can be understood. Okay, and then, and then finally, later on in the series, we are going to hear a discussion of Rhaegar and how he devoured books. He acquired knowledge through books. But then one day, he put down his books and he went out into the training yard to learn to be a knight that way, figuring that reading about swordplay is not the same thing as swordplay itself. That is another classic epistemological question. Is knowing how to do something different from knowing something about that thing? I mean, dude, if I ever teach a philosophy class, I have found my textbook 100%. So, <laughs> so with that in your <laughs> proverbial philosophical pipe and spoken. All right, Seacrest out. Later.